Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hope you all are, are doing well. It's, it's always a privilege to be here and to be thinking about the truth of Jesus Christ as found in the Word of God. And we always like to orient ourselves to what is going on in our contemporary culture. And probably the biggest news that we have to think about this particular time of year has to do with the area of college basketball. And some of you may be wondering why I bring this up. It actually does tie into what I'd like to say today about the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And that is because I need some reassurance. Some of you may not realize this, but I attended Mr. Jefferson's other university, which happens to be about two hours to our west in a little town called Charlottesville. And as you may know, Mr. Jefferson loves to be, loved to be involved in history. And we certainly remember him for his historic contributions to the founding of our country. And as a result of that, the University of Virginia that he founded, that is in UVA's DNA. UVA loves to be involved in history. At least we like to think we do. Last year, this very time, UVA was involved in history as the University of Virginia's men's basketball team became the very first number one seed and number one overall seed to lose to a 16 seed in the NCAA tournament, losing to UMBC last year. UVA is back as a number one seed today, playing the Gardner-Webb, are they the Bulldogs, I, I think? Um, they're down, located down in Boiling Springs, North Carolina, I think, and um, I'm, I'm nervous, okay? I just want to tell you, and, and I, I need some reassurance that history will not repeat itself, so we will see at 310 today if history repeats itself. I do not hope that it does. But, like I said, I need some reassurance. And that word reassurance is going to tie into what we get to talk about today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So, as we have been saying since we started this study, 1 Thessalonians is our call to wait well for Christ's return. And we will get to dive a little deeper into the return of Christ today, which I'm excited about. And the questions that we want to be asking ourselves, that I believe the Lord wants us to ask ourselves, is what are you waiting for and probably more importantly, how are you waiting for it? Because God is very interested that we, as men, as followers of Christ, wait well for the return of his son to earth in the future. So just by way of brief review, again, I, maybe in my own mind I continue to think that these maps are pretty special, but I try to put them up here to orient us to what's happening. This letter was being written to this Really, this group of, if you can call, baby Christians or young Christians in the first century, written about A.D. 51, after Paul had been on his second missionary journey, and Paul um, had traveled along this Ignatian Way over here, all the way across the Aegean Sea, and had made his way with his ministry companions to Thessalonica, and founded this little church. They had to leave under some unfortunate circumstances, and they made their way eventually down. Paul made his way down to Athens. And then when he and his companions met up in Corinth, they said, how, uh, how are the Thessalonians doing? They sent Timothy as part of their ministry group to go and do a little bit of a church plant update. And he discovered some things. And he, he came back and he reported to Paul and Silas what he had found. And 
Two weeks ago, Claude did a wonderful job on teaching on Timothy's great news that the church in Thessalonica was, was doing okay, all things considered. They were experiencing some persecution and they also had some questions, but on the whole, they were doing well as a young group of Christians. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote this letter to encourage them and answer some of their questions. I appreciated what Claude shared two weeks ago. I appreciated really what Dale shared as well last week about talking about the admonition and exhortation to holy living in light of the return of Christ. And so where we turn our attention today is really the seventh, if you could call it, seventh message in this series. And it's waiting well requires reassurance and everything in between. And I'll get to that in just a moment. And we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which is a short passage. While short, has great impact on what we can learn about the Lord's purposes for us and really the Lord's promises to us as we look ahead to the future. So um, read with me, if you will, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Interesting. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left... ...until the coming of the Lord... ...will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven... ...with a cry of command... ...with the voice of an archangel... ...and with the sound of the trumpet of God... ...and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left... ...will be caught up together with them... ...in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord... Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Curious passage here, some curious terminology, curious, mysterious activity being described here. What we get to dive into a little bit this week and next week, gentlemen, is a a little bit of a deeper study about the actual return of Christ. I want you to think about how many times this term and this idea of the return of Christ, we've mentioned it a few times, the Parousia, it's just a word for the advent or the, as we have come to know it, this return of Christ to earth. Some have called it, and we do well to call it, his second coming. 25% of what Paul and Silas and Timothy write in 1 Thessalonians and then later in 2 Thessalonians centers around this idea of the return of Christ in the future. And it's exciting to think that we get a little bit of a glimpse here. I believe God is giving us a gift into showing us just enough of a glimpse into what we can expect down the road. Um, This really is a major, major teaching of the New Testament, the return of Christ. And what we need to understand is that Paul assumed that the Lord Jesus was going to return. He did not defend it. He did not have to tell somebody why it would happen. He just knew and believed that it would happen. And we do well to hold to that same belief. In fact, in our statement of faith here at the chapel, this is the final tenet of our statement of faith. We believe in the bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to claim his own people and to set all things in order. This is an essential teaching of the church. 
the return of Christ. So how do we understand what this return of Christ has to do with this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Well, I'd like to uh, say that this ties in very well to this word of reassurance. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But here is a structure in just thinking through this passage. Well, again, a very short passage. But I think that we can understand it to be focusing on reassurance and everything in between. And here's what I mean by that. We have the beginning of this verse, of these verses, verse 14, is a word of reassurance. We have this promise and description of a reappearance that is the reappearance of Christ in verses 14 and 15. We have the promise of a sequential resurrection in verse 16, followed in part by the, the next order of sequence, which is a rapture in verse 17. And then finally, ending with reassurance in verse 18. So do you see why we're talking about reassurance and everything in between? And this is essential to our understanding as we wait well for the return of Christ. But what I want us to know, because we're going to dive a little bit in the, the brief moments that we have here this morning into uh, some deeper teaching on this topic. But I want you to understand the overall message of what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were getting at is that of reassurance of these young Christians who needed to hear a message of hope. And I believe for you and for me in the 21st century, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, we also need to hear this message of reassurance and hope. And that is our focus. Well, let's look a little bit verse by verse as we walk through and, and look at this theme of reassurance. As Paul, Silas, and Timothy write that they do not want these Thessalonians to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Asleep. This is interesting, thinking about these, uh, again, these verses are very pastoral in nature. Because here's, here's what happened. The Thessalonian Christians heard the gospel. They, they believed in Jesus Christ. This church was started. The Spirit was doing wonderful work in their midst. And they've been told by Paul and Silas... That ...there is going to be a return of Jesus soon. Jesus is coming back soon to gather together... ...his elect, those who have trusted in him. And they thought, this is great news... ...because we're being persecuted here... ...we are very excited for the return of Jesus. And then something happened. A member of their little congregation passed away. And they said, uh-oh. And then another member passed away... ...and then another and another... And after a while, they began to get very concerned because their fear was that those who had passed away, who had trusted in Christ, were somehow going to miss out when Christ returned. That somehow those who were alive would experience something wonderful, but those who had died were going to miss out. And so they began to grieve, and they were tempted to grieve without hope. And Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote them to say... You can grieve, but you grieve with hope. There's the reassurance. They wanted to make sure that their loved ones did not miss out on anything. And, and I can understand that. I'm someone who has gone most of my life not wanting to miss out on anything. There's an Aerosmith song from the movie Armageddon, which came out my last year of college, if you saw it. You know that song, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. It's actually a terrible song, but I don't know why. They, they thought they'd set it in the movie, and they thought it would, would make for a successful picture. I guess the song was ultimately successful, but it's kind of cheesy. Bottom line is, the whole line of the song is, I don't want to miss a thing. And that was kind of the definition of my life for, uh, for much of my um, high school and college years and young adult years. And then it really became challenging when my wife and I moved to Texas. 
and then we moved to Kansas, and then people were getting married, and they were sending these wedding invitations, and then we were like, we, we, don't, we can't travel halfway across the country for this, and, and it really ate me up inside, because I don't want to miss a thing. And that stuff is ultimately just passing. To think what the Thessalonians were wrestling with, with their loved ones who had died, and the thought that their loved ones who had passed away were going to miss the return of Christ, that's heavy. That's eternal stuff. It's no wonder that they were confused and concerned. But these words were great encouragement to them. The word sleep here is an interesting one. Uh, It is a euphemism for death, just so you know that. And I'm thinking even about how when Jesus says in John 11 to his disciples, uh, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And they looked at each other and they thought, well, you know, if he's asleep, he'll wake up on his own. And then finally, Jesus has to be abundantly clear in verse 14 when he says, Lazarus is dead, guys. It's a euphemism for sleep, but our, our, our euphemism for death And we actually, um, there's a word, uh, koimaterion, which comes from the Greek word koimao. Koimaterion is our base for our English word cemetery. And it's a place where people sleep. That's really what the word means. And in the Christian life, we understand this really is just a rest, a sleep. This is not the end of the story. But one day, the Thessalonian Christians... And those who have died in the Lord throughout the history of the church will be arisen from their sleep. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. By the way, this was a diametrically opposed way of thinking about death than the pagan world that the Thessalonians were engaged in thought about death. We have some quotations from some ancient Greek philosophers which read like this. The sun can set and rise again, but once our our brief life sets... That is, once we die, there is, no, there is one unending night to be slept through. In other words, we will never wake up. That's from Catalyst. Then Theocritus. Hopes are for the living. The dead are without hope. We can find very clearly that Paul and his companions want the Thessalonians to know that while you grieve, because grief is a natural part of the process when you lose somebody... While you grieve, you can grieve with hope, for they are in Christ. The gospel is the basis for this hope. It was true of Jesus Christ. He died and he was raised. So will be true for those who are in Christ. They will experience death, but be raised to new life. And if Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, and that took place, he is promising this to us today, and we can trust him at his word. Because death is not the end. Because as Jesus said, he is the resurrection and the life. The question is, do you believe this? I believe this. That's why we can have reassurance. We move to verse 14 and 15. And we start digging a little bit more into this, what the return of Jesus might. um, And I say might only because of some interpretations that differ on these verses. One way or the other, this is what will be involved in the return of Christ. But how we understand the sequencing of these events is where some of the interpretive differences within the church lie. But we do have the reappearance. And it's interesting to think that there will be an order to this event when Christ does return. What I uh, want you to note is that the order of events, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, is pretty clear in Scripture. Regardless of when people believe the timing of of these events, these events do happen in sequence. 
And I'll talk about that when we get to verses 16 and 17. Um, But what needs to be clear too is that those who are living will not precede those who have died when Christ uh, reappears. It's very clear that there is an order. Those who are living will not, certainly not. The strongest way that you can negate a statement in the Greek language is right here in the text. They will not precede those who have died. And this is a word from the Lord. We read that right there in verse 15. This is a word that God has given. Jesus Christ has given Paul, Silas, and Timothy. This idea of the word from the Lord, this phrase appears about 27 times with some different uh, tweaks on the actual language. But this is reminding us the fact that when God speaks, something happens. It's called this idea from, from the Hebrew Bible, the divine speech act. If you remember this, In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. God speaks and his will is accomplished. The divine speech act does what God declares. In other words, you can trust it. And Paul and his companions, it's interesting, as they talk about this language in verses 14 and 15, they talk about we, we, we. Paul and his companions clearly believed that they would be alive ...when the parousia, or the return of Christ, took place. They would shift their thinking a little bit in their later letters. Paul would especially. As he began to see that the return of Christ was probably not going to happen during his lifetime. But at this point he believed, as we should all rightly believe... ...that the return of Christ was imminent. It could happen at any time. That's the reappearance. When we move then to the resurrection... And uh, that's why the sequencing becomes very important, guys. Because uh, he says very clearly in verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. It's fascinating to think about Jesus himself, and it's very emphatic in the language, Jesus himself will descend from heaven. We think about how Jesus went up to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And the angel said to the disciples as they looked up, And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stare? Just as Jesus has gone up, he will come down again. Christ is the focus of these verses. As the term Lord, referring to Christ, is mentioned five times. The announcement that Christ will make from heaven is an interesting one. It's a threefold one. It's described as a cry of command, which is a military term. When a military officer would shout a command... Those under his command would obey his voice. It's also the same word that's used when Athenian fighters would encourage one another on. He shouts, he commands, we obey. It's also described as the voice of an archangel. An angelic voice of of sorts. Sort of the, the commander of the angelic host. It's described as a trumpet. The trumpet of God. This, this will not be... Uh, this will be something that everybody notices. No one will be saying, I I didn't hear that. You you heard something today? I didn't hear that. It will be obvious worldwide. These are different ways of describing the same event. The cry, the voice, the sound of the trumpet. It might be like we sort of look at someone as one person and say, the man, the myth, the legend. Okay, All referring to the same person. These three terms refer to the same event. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the resurrection. And that happens 
first. But the Thessalonians were still having trouble connecting the dots to this event. And so Paul continued. And, and before I continue on to that next verse, I want you to be clear that this was the focus of what Paul wanted to write. We're going to dive just a little bit deep in the next few minutes on a, on a topic that has created much debate within the church, and, uh, which I think is unfortunate. But um, the real focus of this passage doesn't have to do with what we're going to talk about next. The real focus of the passage has to do with this resurrection event of the dead who have died in Christ, trusting in Christ as their Savior. Because that's why the Thessalonians were worried. And that's the thrust of Paul and Silas and Timothy's words to them, is that the resurrection will take place, therefore you can have reassurance. Well, let's turn as we... Oh, yeah. Um... And this is a, this is a really um, a great encouragement from the, uh, the, ver- the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 52, which are, are really, 1 Corinthians 15 is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Uh, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, it's consistent with our language here, And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So, what is this changing about? That's verse 17, the rapture. Again, very clear sequencing. Resurrection first, then rapture after that. This idea of this rapture, this language of being caught up, uh, being seized, being snatched up, being carried off by force. This word rapture in our English language comes from the Latin word rapturo, which is in one of the Latin translations of of the Old Testament. And um, it's a violent and strong event that happens. It's the same word that's used when Philip is preaching the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And after the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized, it says the spirit came and caught up Philip. It's the same word. Interestingly, it says we are to be caught up with the Lord in the clouds. Clouds were often a word that were associated with the place of God's presence in the Bible. Whether that was Mount Sinai or the tabernacle or even the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John joined Jesus up on the mountain. The word for meeting, meeting the Lord, as it says there in verse 17, was a word that was used of Roman emperors when they were met by the citizens of a territory that they were coming to conquer and inhabit, and they would go and meet the emperor. This would be us meeting the king of kings. Interestingly, it says, in the air. That's another fact that that plays into the interpretation of this. Uh, In this passage, at least not directly, we see Jesus actually coming to the earth. It says that he appears, and we will meet him in the air, which again, plays into some of the interpretive um, issues that we deal with in understanding this passage. Um, But the key is the presence of Christ. Christ is present and we will be present with him. And these words would be greatly reassuring. F.F. Bruce writes this in his commentary. Far from being any disadvantage to the parousia, that is Christ's second coming, the faithful departed would actually have precedence over those still alive. Their coming... Uh, Their resurrection would be the first result of the coming of the Lord. Only after that would those still alive enter into their heritage. Let's take a bit of of an excursus here. 
talk about three views of the rapture. And I will seek to do this justice. Um, but I will, I will say there, there are books written. This is a, a whole book I was leafing through a little bit this week. Three views of the rapture. Uh, and I, I will say that this is part of the larger discipline of theology known as eschatology or study of last things. And great debate has centered on this issue, and unfortunately great division has arisen out of it. But I want us to know that this is a matter of biblical interpretation, not of biblical authority. And by that I don't mean that this won't happen. This event will happen, but exactly how it happens and when it happens and the events surrounding its happening are where the interpretation lies. I also uh, want you to note that this falls into a deeper study of people who hold to a position of the premillennial return of Christ. That is, Christ returns to earth before a period of time known as the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. But even that period of the millennium is debated about what it is. Some people think we're in it now. Some people think it's coming later. And so it's sort of a domino effect. If you hold generally to a premillennial return of Christ before the millennium, then you hold to one of these views about the rapture. So the pre-tribulational view, which was most popularized in the early 20th century, about the mid-20th century, the works of uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins in the Left Behind series also popularized this about uh, 25 years ago or so. Uh, That is that the tribulation, or the rapture happens pre-tribulational, before the tribulation, believing that the tribulation is an event described in Daniel 9.27, as the 70th week of Daniel. Again, guys, this, gets, this stuff gets deep, too deep for me. But also the events of Revelation 6, chapter 6 through 19. And that is also the belief that the return of Christ happens in two phases. One would be before the tribulation where Christ appears but doesn't actually set foot on the earth. And you have the tribulation period. And then Christ comes again and finally returns to earth. And that is how the return of Christ is understood in two phases. One before the tribulation and then one after. Before would be when the resurrection and rapture would happen. And then all the redeemed would return in glory after the tribulation. Um, Some things to understand about this is that the return of Christ could happen at any time. There do not need to be any particular signs that precede it. And then finally, this view has served over the years for a very strong motivation for evangelism and missions. Because if Christ is returning at any time to take those who have died to be resurrected and those who are alive to be raptured, then time is of the essence. We must share the gospel. The mid-tribulational view uh, views that the the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation. That's mid-tribulational view. Hopefully that's uh, intuitive enough. Um, they believe that uh, you know, the rapture uh, will happen in the middle because signs will precede the rapture, according to some passages in Matthew and 2 Thessalonians. And the belief there is that the real wrath of God will happen halfway through the, the, the time of the tribulation. And the emphasis is on the three and a half weeks found in Daniel 9.27. And this again gets into some deep Old Testament prophecy. But these are the words of Daniel 9.27. He shall make a strong covenant... That is the Antichrist, according to this view, will make a strong covenant with many for one week. One week referring to a seven-year period. And for half of the week, that is a a three-and-a-half-year period, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And then at the midpoint of that seven years, the three-and-a-half years in, uh, great tribulation happens. And the belief of the mid-tribulational view 
is that the rapture will happen then. Finally, the post-tribulational view. Most popularized from the middle of the 20, uh, 20th century until today. That is that the rapture will happen post or after the tribulation. Signs will precede the rapture that will indicate when this will happen. Those signs, according to this view, will be found in Matthew 24 and first, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. And this actually does seem to be the simplest explanation for uh, what will happen. And the idea of, uh, as we just kind of look at this graphic here, here it is. Here's the, the tribulation down here. Pre-tribulational rapture happens before tribulation. Mid-tribulation happens in the middle of the tribulation. And then post-tribulation happens after the tribulation. And again, the debate centers on when this could happen in the future, but ultimately we don't fully know. I do agree, while the post-tribulational rapture does seem to be the simplest, why would Jesus return, take people with him, and then come back seven years later? But then again, this seems a little odd that Jesus would return, everyone meets him in the air, and then everyone comes back down to earth to reign for a thousand years. Regardless of the view, and I will just say, you know, hey, full disclosure, I, I do hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. But again, this is one of those matters where at the chapel, as an interdenominational family of faith, we agree to disagree. We want to celebrate our unity amidst our diversity. The unity we have is the belief that Christ will return. There's a great quotation here from Gleason Archer, who holds to a mid-tribulational view in the book that I was looking at this week. He says, May the Lord give us all the grace to live and labor in the vineyard of Christ as workmen who do not need to be ashamed. And as his servants who love him with all of our heart, let us look eagerly and expectantly for his soon return at whatever point in the final seven years he may make his appearance. I think that is solid wisdom for us today. Which brings us to the end of this passage, which is a return to reassurance. We started with reassurance, we end with reassurance. That's why waiting well requires reassurance and everything in between. Because Paul and Silas and Timothy say, in light of all of this, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Christ's own death and resurrection is the hope of the gospel, the hope of our reassurance. And we look forward to the day when he will return. Just like the Thessalonians, we have loved ones who have died in the Lord. And these verses have been so important to me in my own ministry as a pastor and in my own life as a follower of Christ. So we conclude with these words from John 14, 1 through 3, which do parallel the words here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Let your hearts... Uh, let That's a big, big word I missed there. Let not... Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, it's just great words here. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. These are great words of encouragement, gentlemen. Great words to know that our Savior will return one day. Whenever that happens, maybe we experience part of a tribulation period and then he comes. Maybe we experience a full period of tribulation 
and endure through that. And then he comes. Maybe we, we die, but he still comes. One way or the other, we will meet him in the air. Whether we have died and are resurrected to glory, or whether we are still alive and we are raptured to glory, we will be with him. And that is of great importance. As we consider moving forward throughout the rest of our weekend, maybe you know somebody who needs to hear this great message of encouragement. I encourage you not to get too, um, too wrapped up in the details of what I have probably made even more confusing in the 30 minutes that we've had here this morning. Uh, I will say that these, these slides will be available on our website a little bit later, either today or next week. Uh, I also say that it's a delight to me to engage in discussion on these matters. But the bottom line is, Christ is returning. And he could return at any moment. So will we be found faithful? And will we be waiting well? Knowing that we have this promise of reassurance and everything in between. That not only will it be okay, it's going to be awesome. Because we are going to be with our Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask simply as um, this text can be maybe confusing and, and maybe distracting in some ways. I know I can get distracted by details that the greatest and most important message that this text wants to tell us today as followers of Christ is that we have hope. But we also have a calling, a calling to live faithfully to share about the truth of Christ. Because there are people around us who do not have this hope. They grieve without hope. And that is not what you desire for your human creation. You desire for humanity to know you through your son Jesus Christ and to experience you each and every, each and every day in relationship. So please send us out. May we be hopeful and encouraged. So many times I think teaching on this topic... Um, produces fear. That's not why you gave us these words. You gave us these words so that we might walk in faith, not in fear. May we do that this week as we head into next week as well. and Be men who walk with faithfulness in Christ as we wait well for his return and the reassurance that you give us through your truth in the scriptures. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ who is coming soon. Amen. All right, next week, 1 Thessalonians 5. Thank you.